Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We are awaiting Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, to wrap up a call her office tells us, and then she will join us momentarily. But let's get set up for it, along with our Bloomberg politics team, Bloomberg political contributors, uh, Jeannie Shanzano, as well as Rick Davis. The big story tonight to our all-star policy panel, the $1.9 trillion economic stimulus, a showdown, is looming between Democrats in the House and the Senate over whether to include a $15 minimum wage with COVID relief. Republicans have lined up against the nearly $2 trillion measure, and at least one Democrat in the evenly divided Senate, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, says he opposes the wage hike. But in a news conference today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Congress must raise the minimum wage. And she added that House Democrats plan to do that. Here's the sound on this particular comment from Speaker Pelosi. We have a very, very strong argument and we have a very big need in our country to pass the minimum wage. Meanwhile, over at the White House, lawmakers uh, are, are forcing some fresh reaction from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who says that the White House is open to other ideas, but she stresses that the majority of Americans are in favor of the $15 minimum wage. Here's the sound on that. If somebody has a better idea, by all means, bring it forward. Uh, we have not seen one. Uh, this is a plan uh, that he remains committed to, and he is hopeful that Republicans, many in Congress, will uh, follow what their constituents want. Rick Davis, let's begin with you, just given uh, your your sources within the Republican Party. At, 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 I mean, Republicans really do have so much political leverage once this bill advances out of the House on Friday and into the Senate. They've got a lot of negotiating chips at their disposal. That's right. And, and they are helped by the point you made earlier, Kevin, that, that, that a key Democrat senator, Joe Manchin, has already staked out ground that he's not for the $15 minimum wage increase. Now, he's also staked out ground that he'd be for a less high minimum wage increase, you know, in the, in the category of around $11, $11 an hour. And so the question is going to be, can he bring in Republicans to satisfy uh, that that request, which is to pass something around a minimum wage increase. Go ahead, Jeannie. You know, I, I think that one of the key issues is, you know, listening to the sot you just played from Nancy Pelosi is, of course, and, and Jen Psaki, is that what, you know, this is going to be a huge challenge for Democrats as you listen to somebody like AOC. I think Jen Psaki is right. Americans, by and large, support this across the board, hence what happened in Florida not that long ago, supporting the minimum wage. But the problem for Democrats is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out and said if Democrats pull this or cut this out of the bill, she may not vote for the entire bill at all. I would assume she's not alone. And then she also said she wouldn't support a compromise with moderates 
for a smaller wage hike. So I think they're going to face a challenge here from their left because I don't foresee this getting through the Senate. Well, that's the trouble on the on the on the House side with uh, Congresswoman AOC. Then it gets to the Senate. Joining us on the telephone line, one of the Republican senators who is in the uh, thick of all of these types of negotiations on the minimum wage. Just take a look at her Twitter account where she's blasting it. Speaker Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee joins us. You've called this Speaker Nancy Pelosi's wish list. Oh, indeed it is. When you have a bill that about 10% of it is actually going to COVID relief and the rest is going for pet projects, you've got $350 billion that is going to some of the blue states for bailouts. You have uh, some of these states that are seeing uh, rising revenues. You've got $50 billion of that 350 would go to New York, $27 billion to California, and California has a surplus this year. When you are looking at this $15 an hour minimum wage, the number of jobs that it would kill, and, you know, Kevin, I was talking to one of the county mayors in Tennessee today, and this is their top issue. They're so concerned about this. He said, you know, we'll have to raise property rates 40% if you all move forward with the mandated $15 an hour minimum wage. This is a small rural county, and it is raise the property taxes or it is let people go. Senator Marsha Blackburn's with us. She's a Republican from Tennessee. She's really in the in the heart of all of these negotiations in the Senate. We're thrilled to have her to give the, the Republican perspective tonight. Senator Blackburn, uh, on the issue of the minimum wage, some folks in your party, including Senators Portman, Romney, uh, Cotton, they've introduced a gradual wage increase uh, to $10 an hour. Is that something that you could get on board with? I think that having the states deal with this is more appropriate because the the income levels, the um, minimum wages in different states and different areas are different. And we want them to have that opportunity uh, to respond to what is happening with the employment levels in their areas. So can I follow up on this? Because so much of the, the conversation in, in some of the other uh, political discourse avenues uh, resolves around that this is a black and white issue. But what you're telling me is that in your state, in rural communities in particular, where there are uh, many small businesses, we're talking only maybe even less than a dozen workers, that they simply cannot afford, these small That's business correct. owners could not afford. Go ahead. That's right. They couldn't afford it. And when we are talking to restaurants, when we're talking to Main Street businesses that are small family-owned operations, they're, they're just very fearful of this. They want to get their doors open. Many of them have gotten PPP loans. They have really struggled to do right by their employees. And they're looking at this and they're just saying, please, do not hit us with a mandate while we're trying to get our sea legs under us. Let's not do this. So we think that it's appropriate to say we want everyone to make the maximum amount that they can make 
a maximum wage. But right now we have to be sensitive to the fact that a lot of people have just had their backs against the wall, if you will. They have found it very difficult and they've struggled. And I talk to small business owners every single day that have really not taken any salary or any revenue from their business because they are trying to keep people employed during this pandemic. I want to talk China quickly, but just one final question on the stimulus front front for Senator Marsha Blackburn. Uh, Chances of this getting passed, if you had to put a percentage on it in the Senate, are, are, are you bullish that Republicans can block this? I think there are a good many things that we can block. Uh, The House, of course, has just created this amazing wish list. You have to look at Pelosi and say, is now really the time to put $335 million into arts, museums, and libraries that are closed? Is it really the time to put $50 million into climate justice? We are talking to communities that are struggling. We're talking to individuals that are struggling. And relief is supposed to be targeted. It's supposed to be timely. It's supposed to be temporary. But to come up with a wish list like this is so disrespectful of people who are hurting, and it is also disrespectful of the hardworking taxpayer. Senator Marsha Blackburn is uh, with us. Uh, She is one of the uh, influential senators on the U.S. and China relations front. For those who have listened to this program for quite some time, frequently when I interview her, it is about her her legislation that would make the U.S. less reliant upon upon, uh, China supply chains in the pharmaceutical sector, her state, Tennessee, uh, really in the mix uh, for for that. You were at the White House earlier this week uh, yeah. meeting with President Biden, uh, one of the few Republicans who was invited uh, by this administration uh, to talk about his executive orders in which he has uh, called for a 100-day review period uh, for and, and meanwhile also instructed Congress to really uh, look at pieces of legislation like yours uh, to see what nonpartisan pieces of legislation could come from uh, diversifying some of the U.S. supply chains. I I know, Senator, that you can't tell us what specifically went on between you and the president, but what can you tell us uh, about uh, this decoupling that we're seeing between the U.S. and China? Yes, and this unraveling of the relationship is going to be very important. And we had four Democrat, four Republican senators who were there and meeting with the president and the vice president. We were very pleased with the conversation because our critical supply chains, whether it's microprocessors or uh, semiconductor chips or batteries or pharmaceuticals and active pharmaceutical ingredients. This manufacturing needs to come back to the U.S. We are running up against a wall, if you will, when it comes to the microprocessors. These are needed in our automobiles, in our appliances, in uh, different entertainment components. Um, We are running uh, up against uh, the ability to import these. So it is imperative that we begin to rebuild these supply chains. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a little while. We're going to have to depend on allies who can manufacture these 
for us a little bit longer, but we need to get to a friendlier uh, working framework for these critical supply lines. Senator Blackburn, it's Jeannie Zeno in New York. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And on this question of China and U.S. relations, um, one of the things that I've struggled with is if and how the Biden administration's approach to China will be different from the previous administrations. What's your view on how it'll be different, if at all? And what would you like them to do? One of the things that has concerned me is some of their early actions through the executive orders. And pardon me, Jeannie, when you look at the Keystone Pipeline and you look at the impact that had not only on workers, but think of it in terms of a generation of crude that is going to not be coming south and ending up in Texas or Louisiana, but is going to be heading to the west and then tankered into China for refining. That should cause everyone to stop and think, how does that advantage China rather than advantaging the USA? And we have to be thoughtful and think long-term in this. It's the same thing with our supply lines, as I was saying, whether it's batteries or, or the microprocessors or, or pharmaceuticals. Uh, think back through, and I know you remember when we had the antibiotic shortage. Yep. And it was because all the antibiotics were made in where? China. And a factory had blown up. When you look at some of the active pharmaceutical ingredients that were needed for the vaccine research, and China said, well, we're not sure we're going to let you have these. Think about what would have happened if Operation Warp Speed had not been so successful. Senator, this is Rick Davis. If I could follow up on uh, the question that Jeannie asked, because I think it's really uh, important for our listeners to have a sense of, you know, this transition from President Trump's very aggressive policy toward China and sort of the big question mark is where is the Biden administration going to come in? Did you get any assurances when you were at the White House that uh, President Biden would continue to block Huawei and keep them on the entities list? Or or as you've pointed out before, uh, the support for the clean network plan that uh, Secretary Pompeo had, is he going to continue that? We are hopeful he is going to uh, continue that. We talked some yesterday about our telecommunication supply lines. It is important to keep Huawei out of those because Huawei, as we all know, embeds that spyware, and you do not detect it until it trips. So keeping that clean network plan in place, and Japan really has been an ally to us on this and holding China to account. These are things that as you look at these supply lines, as you look at critical infrastructure, you have to put all of that into kind of the same basket and say these are imperatives. China is an adversary. They are not an ally. Uh, They are seeking global domination. When you look at 5G, which again gets into your critical supply lines, then you have to realize what China would like to do is be setting the standards on this and take that um, dominant position away from us and use it for themselves. 
Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican in Tennessee. Make sure you come back on and talk to us, especially about uh, those U.S. and China uh, supply lines. And and really, folks, she's been at the forefront of this in the in the Senate for the Republican Party. Uh, and she also she always gives me the 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 gossip on Nashville, Senator Blackburn, with Keith and Nicole. I'm always asking her what's going on down there in Nashville. Who's your favorite country music artist? Oh my goodness, I don't know. I really like Big and Rich. All right, we'll leave it there, Senator Marsha Blackburn. Thanks so much, Senator, for coming on. I appreciate it. I mean, Rick and Jeannie, I think that's fascinating just to, to glean from someone as conservative as, as Senator Marsha Blackburn is to get a really a front row seat to her meeting with President Biden, Rick Davis, uh, in the Oval Office, just to hear it just about where the United States foreign policy is in the, in the short term and where there's actually agreement, even though they're on polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. Yeah, you can't get further apart than Marsha Blackburn and <laughs> President Biden. Uh, but you make a great point, Kevin. I mean, like here, they, they almost sound like they they come from the same place in, in foreign policy, national security affairs. I mean, they are working together to ensure that American competitiveness, especially against China, is preserved. And, and I think as much as we talk about the divisions of politics related to things like this uh, COVID uh, stimulus plan, it is Equally striking, the the people like Marsha Blackburn and, and Joe Biden working together to ensure our country's security. And you guys are, are so good about this because I'm still stuck on a who's her favorite country artist. So <laughs> I, I think Biden would have said Taylor Swift and uh, yeah, Senator and, Blackburn. That's do we still think of Taylor Swift is country. Really? <laughs> she just topped the country charts for the second. Wait, the second guys, time. Now we're in competition with Bruce and Obama. They've got their own podcast. I said, you know, go ahead. I'm, I'm, no, I'm getting I'm, off topic. I'm sorry. No, I got you off topic. But um, no, I wanted to say that I was just reading a piece by Condoleezza Rice and she she makes a point that just follows up with what Rick was talking about, which is that, you know, there has been this trend where we are seeing this sort of morphing of what used to be sort of distinct approaches to trade and China in the U.S. from the two parties. They have now come together in a really interesting way. And I think we see that with the Marsha Blackburn and Joe Biden sort of meeting that happened the other day. You know, and, and coming up, we're going to stick with this thread uh, on, on U.S. and China. Jeremy Bash is going to join us. He's the former uh, chief of staff uh, to the CIA during the Obama uh, administration, and and they actually have a new uh, report out. Um, uh, Jeremy Bash's group does, in which they talk about the need for there to be uh, a clean five G network, and this is something again that the the previous administration, the current administration, uh, and even I guess you could go back to Obama administration uh, have been have been really planning for. But the other takeaway that I got from that interview, Jeannie, was. She's kind of bullish that Republicans could be able to put up a fight on the stimulus in the Senate next week. She, I was surprised by that. I did not expect her to say that. And I think that we are hearing some of that. You know, the polls suggest that there's an awful lot of support back there for you know, across the board for this bill. But she seems to be suggesting that they may have more fight in them. And of course, you know, I keep saying all day, this is truly the rise of the moderates here. It's all about the moderates. They pull one, one over and they've got themselves a fight and i'm gonna i'm curious to see if something like that happens yeah i think you're right Jeannie. that the, you wonder who's in charge of the united states senate anymore <laughs> right it's it's not mitch mcconnell it's not chuck schumer it's joe manchin and uh 
you know, uh, uh, Susan Collins. Susan uh, Collins. Yeah. I think you both just blew our chances of getting a a McConnell or a Schumer (laughs) interview. Go ahead, Rick. Well, I I, I think it's just practically speaking. Of course, their leadership is without contest. Good good job. Yeah. Uh, We've got sound on this, actually, from President Biden earlier today because the Biden administration was, was in a celebratory mood where they were Uh, celebrating 50 million COVID-19 vaccine shots administered in the United States at an event near the White House earlier today. Uh, uh, Biden watched as several people got their shots, and afterwards he said that the U.S. is now leading the world in vaccinations. Here's the sound on that. At first, critics said that goal was too ambitious. No one could do that. Then they said it was too small. At the bottom line, though, is that America will be the first country, perhaps the only one, to get that done. I mean, right there, Jeannie, it's it's really, I guess, a, an opportunity for the for the Biden administration to tout success. But the rollout as a whole, whether it's the administration's fault, the state's fault or whoever folks are blaming, has been rocky, to say the least. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. I think I agree. It, it has been uneven at best. And to your point, the administration would say, as they have said in another context about the slowness of their cabinet coming together, that it was because they had this, you know, non-traditional transition or untraditional transition into office. And of course, during that time, they uncovered that the vaccination plan that we thought was in place um, or were led to believe was in place was not quite up to par or where we were told it might be. So they certainly would place the blame. But now we do see them, I think, to a certain extent, taking a little bit of a victory lap. I suspect we will see more of that going forward if indeed these numbers continue to go down and more and more people are able to get vaccinated. I do want to touch on another developing story that has been bubbling over uh, the past uh, couple of past couple of days, and that's uh, on the nomination of Neera Tandon uh, to head the Office of Management and Budget. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, I don't know if you guys have been following this, but lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have objected to Tandon's past social media posts where she's made comments against lawmakers with opposing views. That's putting it very nicely. And her confirmation vote has been delayed by the congressional committee who was hearing her tes- testimony. Uh, but, but Jen Psaki over at the White House today Uh, says that she apologized and that Biden is still standing by her. Here's the sound on that. She would be joining an administration where, as we've noted in here, there's an expectation of a high bar of civility uh, and engagement, whether that's on social media or in person. And we certainly expect uh, she would meet that bar. And meanwhile, uh, Chuck Grassley, the Republican senator, Chuck Grassley, who's on uh, this committee, uh, he's saying that he is going to oppose oppose the nomination. She would need support from at least one Republican senator to win confirmation. This is after Manchin, again, we've just talked about him, Manchin has said last week that he would oppose her. So Neera Tandon's nomination is in trouble. We mentioned this because uh, the Biden administration, compared to other administrations, has been very slow in order to get, uh, by comparatively speaking to other administrations, to get their... Uh, cabinet appointees through. You know, I, I don't know if it's the weather in D.C. It's been so good lately, but I've just been in a good mood. And here's some optimism. I love this headline on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's really optimistic, you know. It's spring is coming. We're almost out of the winter. Get this headline by Jonathan Levin on the Bloomberg Terminal. COVID hospital admissions drop 72% 
led by oldest U.S. patients. COVID-19 hospital admissions plummeted. I love, I just could read this all day. COVID-19 hospital admissions plummeted 72% in a month in the United States as the virus ebbed and the vaccination push accelerated. Americans 85 years and older, old and over saw the most pronounced drop down 81% from January to February, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which monitors the data through its COVID-19-associated hospitalization surveillance network. The rate was 23.4 hospitalizations per 100,000 residents, 85 and over, for the week of February 7th to the 13th. And, And I'm in the terminal. I've got the hospital admissions uh, graph in front of me and it's it's a beautiful thing to see plummeting dropping going down Jeannie, if that doesn't put you in a good mood i don't know what will it, it absolutely does and it it really starts to feel just listening to you with all your excitement but of course we all feel <laughs> so tone it you down. Know, no i love it please <laughs> keep it up it, it gives me hope it really does begin to feel like we can see the light at the end of the tunnel potentially i mean given half a million people in this country uh passed away you know died of this horrific disease it, it's um, you know, so stunning that we've been at this for a year or more now. But to hear that is really, really good news. It is good news. Right, Rick Davis? Yeah, I'm with you, brother. We we, we want to see this thing extinguished and we got to do whatever it takes to get there. You know, and I hear our executive producers even going to make an appearance in the office tomorrow. I haven't seen her forget what Christine Barada looks like. I'm used to seeing her through the Zooms and the Nexies. You'll maybe have Barada... to take a picture of the two of you socially distant <laughs> with your masks on. I won't be touching my, yeah, I'll have my mask. Yeah, I know, I know. Then I'll get in trouble. Uh, okay, let's talk politics for a second because coming up we're going to uh, go back to geopolitics with Jeremy Bash. But this this weekend is CPAC, and Rick Davis knows a thing or two about CPAC, given his previous experience as the campaign manager to the late great Senator John McCain's uh, presidential campaign. CPAC, for those who don't know, is the Conservative Political Action Committee's annual conference. Truly one of my most f- favorite events to cover, because you just never know. I always say when I leave CPAC, I wish the left did something to 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 do to counter it because it's just so exciting and you really never know what's going to happen. Rick Davis, as a as an astute political strategist as you are, Donald Trump's speaking in Florida at CPAC. It's not virtual. It's going to be driving the conversation for the next 24 hours after he speaks. Yeah, just as you were bringing up CPAC, I started having, you know, cold sweats and shivers <laughs> because nobody nobody's ever lived unless they've been to CPAC and gotten booed by the entire crowd. So I can honestly say it's been a long time, guys, but oh, it's nice gosh. that I'm not going to be there this year. Well, um, what are you going to be watching for? You know, I look, I mean, obviously Donald Trump is going to exert his, uh, uh, I think, self-interest on CPAC. He's going to tell all of them that he's not going anywhere. It's the stuff we've heard before. I think the, the, the backstory on CPAC is, is, is not who's going to be there to rally around the Donald Trump message, because they will. Uh, I think it's the people who aren't going to CPAC anymore, right? I mean, CPAC was a very hot ticket in town for a long time. It was a way to communicate with sort of the base of the party. And there are a lot of senior Republicans who, either because of COVID or because of Donald Trump, aren't making the trip to Florida or being on the Zoom. But the fact that it's in Florida to me is striking, Jeannie, because obviously that was once, uh, it is a swing state, 
And and clearly, uh, the Trump political orbit and the sources that I talk to uh, who still speak to him, and, and if folks are listening saying, why are you still talking about Trump? Well, because he is a major, major force in the GOP, whether you like it or not. And so for him to be speaking in Florida, in a battleground state, uh, his first major address in a speech format uh, since the, the, the second impeachment, you know, Jeannie, it, to me, it's sending a message to McConnell, uh, to Liz Cheney, uh, to Governor Newsom in California even, uh, that, this, that he is going to continue to, to operate amongst his political coalition. And the data supports that. Uh, you look at these polls that have been coming out, uh, you know, 54% um, Republicans, um, Morning Consult Politico, said they would back Trump in a Republican primary if he was to run. Not just that, not one of his, you know, big supporters, Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. says just the other day that he's pretty sure that Trump would win a primary at this point, or a nomination, rather, at this point, by a landslide. So that sort of gives an indication um, to Rick's point, we have seen the people leaving the party, but those that remain, there is a good percentage that are solidly Trump. And I know you both watched the fascinating video of, of, of Kevin McCarthy and Liz yeah. Cheney, you know, figuratively and literally walking in other directions on this mm -hmm. question of should he be speaking at CPAC? And I think that tells you everything you need to know about the state of the Republican Party today. You, you know, I always say this. I always say this. Uh, to whenever I'm talking about politics with with sources and and I say it to the left I say but the difference between Republicans and Democrats is that Republicans know how to fight each other politically they know how to have an open disagreement they're not afraid of doing it and I think ever since the arrival of AOC to be candid uh, Democrats have have sort of started to 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 illustrate that they're willing to have inter-party public squabbles as well. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by our Bloomberg Policy All-Star panel contributors Rick Davis as well as Jeannie Sean Zeno. You know, we've been talking about geopolitics at the start of the show, and I want to continue this conversation with our next guest, Jeremy Bash, because he's got a new uh, report out, a nonpartisan report uh, from folks in the intel world who have served in Republican and Democratic administrations. It's a, a new strategic national security policy from the American Edge Project, and it, it details in, in really plain terms about the type of policy framework that the United States ought to have in order to to keep itself safe in the digital infrastructure uh, against China. Now, Jeremy Bash is, of course, the former CIA and Pentagon chief of staff uh, during the Obama years. And, and Jeremy, first of all, thanks so much for the time. And I think back to when I spoke uh, during the campaign with now Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and he really laid it out for us that the world is going to have to be uh, organized, so to speak, digitally between the techno-democracies 
and the techno autocracies, China. So uh, you your report outlines some frameworks. What are what are some of your key takeaways? Well, that's exactly right, Kevin. First, it's great to be with you. What we're calling for in this report is what we call digital power. A lot of people have heard the term the United States uses its hard power, like its military power. Sometimes we use our soft power, our, our influence, our values, our diplomacy. And sometimes we use smart power. And now we're calling for digital power, which is basically, Kevin, that we want the United States to play a huge global leadership role in investing in and protecting U.S. tech. It's a big strategic advantage for the United States. China, as you said, is on the move. We are in a huge competition with them. It's an adversarial competition. They're trying to dominate the Internet. They want to dominate the digital infrastructure, and they ultimately want to dominate content. And so what we're calling for is a policy framework coming out of Washington that would you know, advance an open Internet, that would defend our cybersecurity and protect innovation. And that's really critical, we think, for national security. You know, I was really struck by, by this one uh, particular point. We've been talking a lot this week, Jeremy, about semiconductors and shortages and whatnot. And in the report, it says, while the U.S. maintains an advantage in emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence and semiconductors, it has lost what was once a comfortable lead to China, with many experts thinking China is only a few years behind in these technologies. You go on to cite some concerns about 5G deployment and even the future beyond 5G. So what can the United States, what should the United States be doing to plan for the future to keep that American edge? Well, the, one of the key things that we got to do is globally, we've got to convince countries in Europe, but even across the developing world as well, to go with U.S. tech and, and, and not to succumb to kind of the quick, better, uh, seemingly better deal that China's offering. It's not a better deal. It's actually a less secure deal. And that pertains to 5G, but it also pertains to the U.S. playing a global leadership role in some, setting some of the standards in these international standard-setting bodies. I think, second, uh, we've got to do a lot better job at investing in, in data security and, and cybersecurity. The solar wind tax obviously pointed up to vulnerabilities in our sub software supply chain. And we've got to keep our, our techno-democracies, as you referenced earlier, together. And, and we've got to have a unified block to pursue these policies vis-a-vis -vis China because they're trying to, China's trying to recruit other countries to their camp as well. Jeremy, this is Rick Davis. Thanks for being on with hey, us Rick. today. Uh, and uh, really love the report that you, uh, you authored with one of my favorite people, Fran Townsend. So shout out to she's her. Awesome. She's, she's a great partner and uh, a board member for McCann Institute. Um, you know, one of the things you point out in this report is <clears throat> how important it is to advance democracy through an open Internet, right? I mean, everybody in the United States, I would say almost to an individual, would think, yeah, of course the Internet's open. It's what we have every day. But, but, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit because I don't think people really understand that countries like India and others are closing down there. The government is, is now controlling that Internet, that decides what goes on it and who gets access to it. That's right, Rick, and it's a great point. And you're right, Fran Townsend and, and her, one of her co-authors, Admiral Jim Stavridis, who was the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, our NATO commander, four-star Navy Admiral, they, they, on a bipartisan basis, co-authored this report, in part because I think they're worried about American values being, uh, I think, overtaken or undermined, I should say, by China um, and other countries. You know, we enjoy the benefit of an open Internet. We can put any idea out there. China, of course, has what's called the Great Firewall. They don't let people uh, post views or ideas on the Internet from their country. And as they dominate other countries, not just in the Asia-Pacific region, but frankly around the world, they're going to limit the ability for free speech, for value, for, for just talking about issues. 
and, and, and that's a big strength of the Internet. And, and there, there's another regime. It's called the Splinternet. And when you start getting these requirements by India and others to localize all of their data, you know, in India or other places, it can really fracture the Internet. And I think that can undermine the values that we're trying to promote. Jeremy, it's Jeannie Zeno, and I just want to echo what Kevin and Rick said. I think this is such an important project that you put forward this report. And on the issue of tech supremacy and China, is it game over if China reaches quantum supremacy, which they seem to have, um, at least that's what we're hearing. And one of the things you hear attached to that is everything else pales by comparison. What's, what's your view of that? Yeah, quantum is, is a, a supercomputing technology that would potentially allow them to uh, break down our defenses. Um, and I think the reality is, is that we have to invest a lot more in our own quantum capabilities. And I've actually uh, been talking to some folks in the commercial sector recently who are investing in quantum-proof cybersecurity. And, of course, that would that will be critical, not just because we all rely on our iPhones and our, our Android devices and our our, our, our you know, computers every day, but because as all of our cars and, and frankly, everything becomes part of the Internet of Things, we're going to need to make sure all of those devices are secure. And if the United States is going to have a, a global technological leadership, it's going to have to be able to compete on the quantum playing field and stay one step ahead. No doubt. It's a great point, Jeannie. You know, Jeremy, it was literally right about a year ago. I, I took a break from covering the campaign trail and I went on an embed trip with um uh, now former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, we went to to, to different countries, Jamaica, Colombia, uh, uh, one of them. And when I was on the ground there, I went to the local shopping mall to get a bite to eat, you know, get some street food. I'm always hungry. And I saw Huawei signs. I saw Huawei signs, Huawei stores, folks, like you would see if you go to see an Apple store. And yep. I had never seen that before in my life. And I thought, wait a minute, this this isn't in this isn't in Asia, this is right here. I mean, how do we? What can you just stress to our audience? Just the importance of of China's digital Silk Road. It is very close to the United States. It's on our doorstep. Uh, they are they're trying to undersell us everywhere in the world, and of course, they do so at a huge cost. Because of course, if countries go all in on the China model. Number one is they're compromising security. And number two is they're compromising values. And so the United States is going to have to get, I think, a lot more aggressive, frankly, at promoting our own technology globally. It's, as you mentioned, right here in our own hemisphere. It's in Latin America. It's across Africa. It's actually also in Europe. I mean, the European yep. Commission, the European Union, has been wanting to try to do deals with China. And I think that's a huge issue. And I think it's a big problem. I think we need to strengthen our alliances, and really get more aggressive promoting U.S. tech globally. Very quickly, final question. Are you confident that Europe's going to start getting back in, uh, to, to the American playbook in terms of dealing with, with uh, China on, on tech? Look, I think they have, a in the Biden administration, a very willing partner to strengthen U.S. Uh, European transatlantic ties. But honestly, there's a big, uh, big tech lash going on in Europe that I think if the United States doesn't speak up against, uh, it, could, it could cause Europe to fall. In, into the hands of China in this techno uh, race, and, and we got to we got to be vigilant about this, Kevin. I, I'm pretty I'm pretty concerned about it. All right, I asked Senator Marsha Blackburn the same question because she's from Tennessee, Nashville, country music. I do know that you are a, an acoustic guitar fan. Who's your favorite country music artist? Oh God, oh God, uh, I'm not a huge country music fan, but I you know I, 
I, I, I, I love all kinds of things and I'm, I've, I've been playing for my, uh, my kids this year as we've been home for COVID and, and we do all kinds of folk music, all, you know, every, everything under the sun. I love it. All right. Thank you very much to Jeremy Bash. He, of course, is the former chief of staff for the uh, CIA as well as the Pentagon. February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg is honoring uh, significant contributions in the black history community. Here to, with today's installment is Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1870, Hiram Rhodes Revels is sworn in as the first African-American U.S. Senator. He represented Mississippi. His path to the U.S. Senate was not without controversy and contradictions. Conservative Southern Democrats challenged his credentials, citing the Dred Scott decision. They claimed Revels was not a U.S. citizen for the required period of time, nine years, and therefore ineligible to hold office. Now, although the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to all African-Americans, it was was only adopted two years prior. Revels came from a mixed race heritage, and his supporters successfully argued that he'd been a citizen his entire life since he was not of pure African ancestry, so the Dred Scott decision did not apply to him. After serving in the Senate, Revels became the first president of what's now Alcorn State University. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And signing off for Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, my name is Kevin Cirilli, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.